0: What's good boys and girls, welcome to the Two Footed Podcast on a somber Monday the 14th of December. Uh, we're brought to you as always by EPLindex.com in association with our presenting sponsor Liberty Shield. Liberty Shield is a VPN provider so do check out their services at LibertyShield.com. Also check out uk uh, for any household items you might want or potentially like Christmas presents you want to pick up. Uh, As I said, it is a sombre Monday because news broke this morning that Gerard Houllier has passed away, uh, best known to many as the manager of Liverpool, also managed the French national team, Lyon and Aston Villa. Gerard Houllier was uh, the man who turned Liverpool around. Gerard Houllier was the man that re-established Liverpool among the European elite, and Gerard Houllier was the man that modernised Liverpool Football Club. Not. To get too in-depth about him, but genuinely one of the nicest men you could ever wish to meet. A man with a real deep affection for the city of Liverpool, having spent a year there while completing his teaching degree. Uh, He returned as manager in 1998 as joint manager with Roy Evans. That didn't work very well. He took over later in the year as sole manager. When Evans departed and um, over the next five and a half years, he did great things. He won a treble in 2000, 2001, winning the FA Cup, the League Cup and the UEFA Cup. He also added a European Super Cup and a Football League Cup while at the club. would go to Lyon, win two league titles and then obviously finish out his managerial career at Aston Villa. Um, I could spend an hour, and I'm going to spend an hour, talking about him on Anfield Index Pro later today. But genuinely, a man that gave me great memories, a man that, like I say, modernised Liverpool Football Club, is, is I believe, largely responsible for Liverpool still being an elite club. I think if it wasn't for him, there would be no Rafa Benitez in Liverpool. There would be no fifth Champions League. And without that, who knows where the club goes. Uh, Rest easy, Jed. Thank you for everything you did. It was emotional. Right. Um, Full slate of games this weekend. And a full slate of games to come this week. So rather than go through each individual game in depth, I just wanted to hit on some main talking points today uh, because I don't want to spend the entire week uh, just going over games when you you probably have seen a lot of them or you may not care about some of them. But I'm just going to hit the hit the main talking point on each game. Uh, first up, Friday night, Leeds against West Ham. West Ham win the game 2-1 after Leeds go up 1-0 with a penalty that's uh, retaken after Fabianski steps off his line to save a very weak effort. But Leeds have had defensive problems this year. That's no. No secret, their biggest issue has been their inability to defend set pieces. And once again, that is shown to be the case here. Suchek and Ogbonna both score from from set pieces. And it really has become an issue for Leeds now. It really is something that they will need to address because it's becoming too easy for teams to score on them from set pieces. Now, I know they have bought Robin Cock and Diego Lariente, but both of them are out injured right now. Neither of them are particularly dominant in the air. And Liam Cooper is really struggling to adapt to life in the Premier League. He has really struggled. He played in, in central defence against uh, or ne- next to Luke Ayling, who's naturally a right back. And during the flow of the game, I thought they defended quite well. But on set pieces, they always looked all at sea. Cooper completely misjudges his jump for uh, Albano's goal. And Obama buries it. It needs a great header, but Cooper should do a lot better. Leeds need to sort this defensive issue out. If they don't, they're going to get dragged back into that relegation battle. They currently sit 14th on 14 points. They're six points clear of Fulham in 18th. That six points can be gobbled up very, very quickly. That is my concern with Leeds. For West Ham, this great run of form they've been on continues. They sit sixth, 20 points from 12 games. They're halfway to their target for the season. Their target was to stay up this year after the upheaval they've had, the poor summer they had. West Ham will be absolutely thrilled with how they sit in the league right now. And barring a collapse of monumental proportions, they're going to be absolutely fine this year. Them and Brighton are the two teams I was most wrong about when I predicted this season. And um, I'm happy to have been wrong about West Ham. I I do feel that West Ham are one of the proper Premier League clubs. They're a proper old-school club. One of the great clubs of English football. Incredible history there. That fan base have been through an awful lot, from bad ownership, as they currently have, the move to the new stadium, which hasn't gone anywhere near the way they were told it was going to go, leaving their historic home uh, at Upton Park, which you know, I'm, I'm, I'm still annoyed about. It's been a really, really good start to the season for West Ham. Really, really good, and long may it continue. David Moyes seems to have discovered some of the old David Moyes. I said before, he's a better manager than people think he is. People forget that he did a good job at Everton. People look at United, they look at Sunderland, they look at Sausiedad, and they think that he is, you know, a below average manager. He's not. He is a good manager when he's in the right headspace, and he seems to be in the right headspace right now. Um, next up, then, on Saturday morning, Wolves against Aston Villa. A 1 0 win for Villa with a late penalty from Anwar Al Ghazi. Wolves yet again showing that it doesn't matter how much talent they have on the pitch, they will find a way to be boring. This game was not a pleasant watch. Uh, For Villa, it's a really big win. Really, really big win. After a bunch of poor results, they start to turn things around. 18 points, they sit in 10th, but they have two games in hand against most Premier League teams. They could win those two games in hand. Now, one of them, admittedly, is Man City, but the other is Newcastle, which is a game they'll expect to win. That could vault them right back up into the top four. So this is a big win for Villa. For Wolves, it's a disappointing defeat. It's always disappointing when you lose at home. Five defeats already for Wolves this season. But given how tight the table is, it's an easy turnaround for them. If you look at the table from 6th to them in 13th, there's only three points separating all of those teams, so a couple of results go your way, you can you can change your season around in an instant. Um, a couple of late sendings off in this game, foolish late sendings off. Douglas Luiz and Jay Matinho. It's just one of those. It was one of those scrappy, bitty games where you could tell there was a lot of frustration amongst the players. I really don't know what Nuno's issue is at the moment. At the start of the season, he kept leaving Adama Traore out. Now he's leaving Ruben Neves out. I mean, do you not want your best players on the pitch? Is that what it is? Do you you just not want to have the best team available to yourself? Um, A centre-back pairing of Conor Cody and Roman Sice. They looked all over the place. Villa probably should have scored a couple more goals. Matty Cash had a really good game in this one. Got up and down that right flank endlessly. And Ezri Konza, once again, proving he is one of the best young centre-backs in the Premier League. Should be in the England squad. Joe Gomez is going to need a replacement in that England squad. And Ezri Konza should absolutely be it. The game after that was Newcastle against West Brom. Toon go one up real early, 19 seconds in. And uh, it became a very scrappy affair, but there were some, some good moments. Both goalkeepers made some decent saves in this game. Um, West Brom got themselves back into it with uh, a brilliant finish from Darnell Furlong before Dwight Gale wins it for the turn with a great header. Brilliant header. Dwight Gale is an interesting player because when he's in the championship, he will score for fun. He's always struggled at Premier League level. He may just be one of those guys. There's been a couple of them. Marcus Stewart, anyone remember him? Brilliant in the championship. Always struggled in the Premier League. Dwight Gale, I think, is one of them. Uh, I don't think you have much of a future at Newcastle. He'll probably leave in January. But when he can grab you a goal, he becomes an important player. Jolington is playing really well. And finally, Newcastle are starting to use him correctly. Finally, they've realized he's not a number nine. He's best played just off a main striker. Even though he's like 6'2", six, 6'3", six, he's actually much better with his feet than he is in the air. And they're using him correctly and they're getting the results. He is playing well, created the goal for Almiron. And, um, again, a big goal for Almiron to get because he's had a little bit of a tough time, obviously, since joining Newcastle. If he had consistency, I think he would probably find his way to a top-six club. He's got a lot of talent. Um, Callum Wilson is is absolutely key to that team, though. Everything seems to run through him. He is a focal point in their attack. And, look, Steve Bruce is doing a decent job there. Uh, He has them currently in 12th position but with a game in hand, that game against Villa. But again, they're only three points off sixth. That's a really positive place for them to be. For West Brom, I mean, they are where they are, the 19th in the league. Six points from their 12 games um, and and starting to run the risk of, of falling into a group of two with Sheffield United, where we start to write them off. Uh, I still think West Brom have... A good midfield and a good attack. But that defence is never going to cut it in the Premier League. And barring some investment in the summer, or sorry, in January, they, they might as well start waving goodbye to their Premier League aspirations. Um, you know, when we looked at these games on Friday, there was a couple that stood out as potential stinkers. And one that had a bit of potential to be a stinker, but also had the potential to be really exciting, was the Manchester Derby. Uh, it turned out to be an absolute stinker. By far the worst game of the weekend. Unwatchable. Absolutely unwatchable dreck. Um Not a whole lot to talk about in the game, really. Both teams look scared. Both teams look more interested in not losing. I can understand it from Ollie. That's kind of what Ollie does in big games in the Premier League. Is he sets his team out to bore us all to tears. But from Pep. I mean, City were so disappointing in this game. So disappointing. I really... I don't know what it is that City are lacking. But when John Stones becomes your main playmaker in a game, uh, you're going wrong somewhere. City's lack of balance is is massively, massively important. No left-back means that... The width comes from the fullbacks and Canseo always wants to go infield. They play inverted wingers now. It's not working for them very well. Mares didn't have a particularly good game. Sterling didn't have a particularly good game. But the lack of width on the left-hand side in particular is, is really striking. And I've said this before. When you think back to when City were great, when City ruled the Premier League, 4-3-3, De Bruyne, Fernandinho, David Silva, Sterling, Aguero, Sane would morph into a 4-4-2 with De Bruyne shifting to the right, Sane shifting wide left, and they would stretch the field vertically and horizontally. And it was easy to know what they were going to do, and it was impossible to stop. Everybody knew what they were going to do, but it was impossible to stop. And then you get those fullbacks launching forward all, all day. I look at that City team. They went 4-2-3-1 at the weekend. to Give De Bruyne that number 10 role. Might as well not have bothered. Might as well not have bothered. Playing two holding midfielders, very unlike Pep. Very unlike Pep. I know he's often gone with Fernandinho and Gundogan, or Rodri and Gundogan, but Gundogan's not really a holding midfielder. He's more of a deep playmaker. This was two out-and-out holding midfielders, um, and it just didn't work for them. City have quite a lot that they need to get themselves back to the level they were at a few years ago. Kyle Walker has undoubtedly regressed. He's no longer much of an attacking force. He has improved defensively largely because he stays in defensive positions more. Still has decent recovery pace. Um, you look at, but, but I would say long-term, you will want to replace him. You will want to find someone better. Now, maybe that's Joe Canseo. Maybe you just switch him to right back where he belongs. You put up with the fact that defensively he's not really bothered. But they definitely need a left back. I do like the normal starting pair at centre-back of Diaz and Laporte. I think both of them are excellent. I really like Rodri. I think the system needs to change ever so slightly to get the best of him. Ederson, I think, is overrated. But he, you know he's a good shot-stopper. He's good at his feet. He just needs to work on his decision-making. Um, De Bruyne needs to play on the right of that midfield three. We know that. That's where he belongs. That le- The left of that midfield three... Bernardo Silva or Phil Foden really need to step up. They really need to step up because that position is just sitting there begging for someone to take it. That David Silva role is begging for someone to take it. If one of them can do it, it'll save City 100 million because that's that's the level of player you're going to have to get to replace David Silva. But Bernardo and Phil Foden have the talent to do it. And up front... Sterling needs to be back on the right-hand side. Playing on the left doesn't suit him at all. It's not nearly as effective, not nearly as good. Uh, the number nine position, obviously, it's Aguero until it's not. Uh, this season, it hasn't been because he's been injured. But that is that is Sergio's role. And as long as he's there, he will be the number nine. Um, He may not wear number nine, but he is the number nine. They need to find that left winger. They need to find that Leroy Sané replacement. This was a bizarre game where both teams only made one substitution. Now, in part, that was likely because the players didn't run a whole lot. Um, United were very defensive-minded in this game. Um, they didn't offer a whole lot of anything. They had a, you know, some pot shots, some long-range efforts but nothing that you were going to be worried about if you're you're Man City. And, you know, the same goes the other way. Uh, Neither keeper really called into doing anything that would be out of the ordinary for them. Just a a, a poor game all round. A lot of fouls, a lot of bittiness, a lot of broken play. But both of these sides need a lot of work. For United, I mean, we know what they need. I mean, Alex Teller solves the problem at left back, but they still need a right side centre back. They still need one in midfield, and they could probably do it, you know one more in attack. Maybe not a starter, but just a, a different type of attacker, and they need to get rid of Paul Pogba. Why Paul Pogba was on the pitch for this game, I have no idea. It shows how far United have fallen that he is starting this game after what happened with Raiola. And not just that, but after how poor he has been. Like, he has been dreadful this season and last season. And the season before. I, I I don't know why he's in the team. Maybe the season before was the season he, he's had one good year at United. Either way, he shouldn't be in the team. Ollie is Ollie doesn't have the the fortitude to leave him out though. Uh up next then we had Chelsea against Everton. Again, this wasn't a particularly great game of football to watch, but Everton get a big, big win here. Uh, Chelsea dominated possession, but Everton had the better chances. Mendy made a couple of good saves. Uh, but when he signed, I did say decision-making is the biggest issue with him. Last weekend made a poor decision, cost a goal against Leeds. This weekend made a really poor decision and cost a penalty, which Gylfi Sigurdsson scores with ease. I thought Everton should have had a second penalty. Chilwell fell Calvert-Lewin, there's just no way around that, it is a penalty, I think 2-0 would have flattered Everton a little bit, but it is what it is, a uh, big, big win like I say for Everton, it gets them back on track, uh, they're now 7th, 3 points off, 4th though, so Spike Guy laughing at me on Friday and me laughing at myself, they are still in that mix for that that 4th Champions League spot, Um For Chelsea, they drop out of the top four, then a fifth, two points ahead of Everton. But I said Friday, Chelsea are flat-track bullies. And I believe I am correct. Let's look at their season. They beat Brighton, who are in the bottom half. They lose to Liverpool, who are in the top half. They draw West Brom. They beat Crystal Palace, who were bottom half. They draw with Southampton, who are top half. They draw with United, who are top half. They beat Burnley, who are bottom half. Sheffield United, who are nailed to the bottom of the league. Newcastle, who are bottom half. Draw with Spurs. Beat Leeds, who are bottom half. And then lose to Everton, who are top half. They're yet to beat a top half team. And they've had an easy schedule. They've played four top half teams five. They've played five top half teams. But they've played seven bottom half teams. And in those games, against top half teams, their only goals are the three against Southampton. No goals against Chelsea. No goals against Spurs. No goals against United. No goals against Liverpool. Three goals from five games against the top half, all in one game. All arguably against a team that they would expect to beat. I mean, I think Southampton are probably the biggest surprise of this season for everybody, uh, currently sitting fourth. Chelsea are flat-track bullies. Chelsea struggle against top-half teams. They're away to Wolves next. Wolves are 11th. but Wolves are a top-half team, quality-wise. But that will be interesting to see, whether or not they can end that inability to beat top-half-caliber teams. They have West Ham after that, who are a top-half team. But again, maybe they're a bottom-half team by the end of the season. So it's going to be fascinating to watch them against those teams that are challenging for European places, Champions League places, etc. Wolves, West Ham, Arsenal, Villa, then City, then Leicester. The next five, six games for Chelsea are going to be massively telling us what they are as a team. We need to see a lot more adventure from them. We need to see more of a tactical plan because right now they have been relying on individual talent to win them games. Not a tactical plan. Uh, Kaya Havertz continues to struggle. That's a concern. Frank doesn't seem to know how to use him. As I have said in the summer, I don't think he was ever part of the plan for Chelsea. I think that was one where they took advantage of a situation where he wanted out of Leverkusen. Nobody else was in a position to buy him at the time, given the finances involved. And they took a gamble. And thus far, it hasn't really worked. I still maintain massive, massive hope in him. I wonder if he could transition into that number nine role. Um, where I think they're best this season with Giroud. And maybe Havertz could play that role as kind of a false nine with Werner on one side and maybe Pulisic on the other. Get pace and goal scoring either side of him. That might work. I do think that midfield three of, of Kovacic, Kante and Mount is probably their best midfield three, but there's no real balance in it. They're all guys that want to go and press, and it does leave them a little bit open to the counter. I wonder if they could get a real holding midfielder in there and then rotate the three of those, Kovacic, Kante and Mount, among the other two positions. That might work best for them. Um, All things considered, Everton deserved their win. And uh, for Chelsea, need to figure out how to play against those top half teams, how to get those results, or you're not going to get top four. Um, Into Sunday... No surprise, Southampton wiped the floor with Sheffield United. Aaron Ramsdale really, really is struggling this season. Um, United are, are struggling this season. I mean, the one point from twelve games, one point from thirty-six available. One of the worst starts we've ever seen in the Premier League. Um, it's. It's sorry. It is the worst start we've ever seen in the Premier League. It's not one of the worst starts. It is the worst start we've ever seen in the Premier League. One point from twelve games. It's unacceptable. It really is unacceptable. When you look at historically in the Premier League at where they they rank, um, I think mean, there's always a Sunderland entry, no matter what you're talking about with, with bad runs of form there's always a Sunderland entry. Now, their worst run of form, which is the worst run of form in Premier League history, was in 2002, I think, one point from 19 games. Now, they have a ways to go to get there, but they're on the way. But one record they are facing up on, uh, QPR started a season with 16 games without a win in uh, 12-13 or 13-14, one of those seasons. They did draw uh, seven of those, though. So they took seven points from those 16 games. Sheffield United have United at home, Brighton away, Everton at home, Ber- and then Palace away. There's no obvious win there. There's no no easy game there. The two home games, United and Everton, two top-half teams, and then, I mean, Brighton away won't, won't be easy at all. Burnley away will be horrible, and Palace away will be horrible. So, QPR may, might lose that record soon. That's what I'm going to say. They might lose that record soon. Um, it really is turning into the nightmare season. It has become, no, it's not turning in. it. It is the nightmare season for Sheffield United, and it's unfortunate because they were so good last year. They were so much fun. The over reliance on championship level players who just don't make the grade at Premier League level has hit them. The failure to just give the big money striker that you bought, Ream Brewster, give him a run of games. I don't understand why Chris Wilder hasn't just gone, you know what, paid twenty five million from him in the team you go, son, and stay there. If you don't score for five games, you're gonna play the sixth. You've got it you've gotta try something. Something's got to change for Sheffield United, and it has to change really soon. Otherwise, they're not going to win another game before the turn of the year. And, I mean, it's already looking very, very difficult. They're eight points from Burnley, who are 17th. And Burnley have a game in hand. and that game in hand is against United, so it won't be easy. But they're eight points already from safety. That is going to be really, really difficult for them to To make up. Southampton really good performance, really really good performance. Uh, great to see Danny Ings obviously back playing. Che Adams gets himself another goal. He's been in good form this year. The second goal, I mean, I, I have no idea what Ramsdale is doing, but Armstrong shot. He, he, if he blew at it, it probably would have stayed out. Um, I. It's tough. It is tough. It's tough to be too hard on Sheffield United when they're so poor, but, you know, they are what they are. Southampton sit fourth in the league. They will be absolutely thrilled. Ralph Hasenhutl is currently, without question, the manager of the year. Any other arguments are, are just not worth making. He is the manager of the year thus far. Um And the last thing is, hopefully they can keep hold of him because there's rumours going around that Borussia Dortmund would like him having sacked Lucien Favre. Let's just hope they can keep hold of him there at Southampton because he's great to have in the Premier League. He's great for them. And there's a nice little bit of symmetry with Leicester 3rd and Southampton 4th after what happened just over a year ago between those two teams. Um, it, It is incredible to see them sitting, you know, Right next to each other in the Premier League table, especially given Southampton have taken more points than than Leicester since that since that night. Um, it'd be fun the next time they play each other. It really will. Maybe that's a little rivalry that we can we can get built here uh, on the two Footed podcast. Uh, up next, Spurs against uh, Crystal Palace at Crystal Palace. Of course, a one all draw. This game was, again, it had some unwatchable moments. But uh, Vincente, uh, uh, Vincente Gaeta, I-, I would like somebody to explain to me what happened. I don't know how he made some of the saves he made. Given the goal he conceded, I have no idea how he made the saves he made. He made two good saves before the goal and about four great saves after the goal that he had no business getting anywhere close to this. The save from Eric Dyer is just insane. The save from Kane's header was insane. I, just, I don't know how you'd do that and then allow the goal that you allowed, uh, which literally a hit-and-hope effort from Kane that went straight down the middle, um, along the ground. I, I don't know how he let it in. I really don't. Um, the same thing at the other end, though. I mean, the, the Spurs goal, or the Palace goal, was a mess. Jeffrey Schlupp um, taking advantage of a lapse in the Spurs' defence. Hugo Lloris made some decent saves in this game as well, but didn't cover himself in glory for that goal. Uh, It's a a disappointing result for Spurs, obviously dropping points. That's a game they would have targeted to win. But they remain top of the league. 25 points from their uh, 12 games. Palace sit in 11th. And Palace will be really happy. Palace will be really, really happy for the Haji to have a positive goal difference twelve games into the season. This has to be a this has to be a first. I, I, I must actually do do some research, or if somebody else would like to do that research for me. Um it, it's just it's very unusual for the Haji to have a positive goal difference. But uh, they they have one and they're you know they play some good football. Uh EC and, and Zaha again combining for some nice nice attacks. Benteke looking more like the Benteke we expect, the guy that scored six goals in three years, aimlessly wandering offside, and then God knows what he was doing anytime he got the ball. Um, But, you know, again, Spurs will be disappointed not to have gotten the win. Another team that will be disappointed is Liverpool. Liverpool travelled to Fulham, and uh, the hosts outplayed them, outfought them, and really should have been 3-0 up before Liverpool even realised the game had kicked off. Uh, Fulham end up getting a one-all draw very unfortunate for Fulham they they deserve more Liverpool did not deserve anything from that game they were they were diabolical absolutely diabolical uh, senior players like Jordan Henderson, Ginny Wijnaldum and Bobby Firmino would need to have a long look in the mirror after their performances Gareth Crooks needs to have a really long look in the mirror having put Jordan Henderson in his team of the week I don't think he bothers watching football anymore he said Liverpool would have lost the game if Henderson hadn't played. Henderson was literally their worst player. Literally their worst player. And it's this propaganda and fawning over him. I got pushback last week when I said he was the most overhyped player ever uh, in the Premier League at the moment. Last week, he put in a 7 out of 10 against Wolves and had articles and podcasts dedicated to him. This week, he puts in a 3, 3 out of 10. And you've got idiots like Art Crooks putting him in a team of the week. Farcical stuff. Shocking performance from Henderson. A shocking performance from Liverpool and Fulham very, very unfortunate. Fulham deserved the win there. Zambo Wangisa had a great game. Adamola Luckman had a great game, though was lucky to escape a red card for a pretty bad tackle on Nico Williams. But Fulham can be very, very pleased with their performance. We'll get to their league position in a moment. But that back four or that back five, as it is, is functioning well. It is functioning well. Ana. Is more of a naturally attack-minded player, but he is defending quite well. Anderson had a really good game, and Tosin had a very, very solid game. On the left side of that back three, he had a very, very solid game. The wing wingbacks, uh, Bobby Reid and Robinson both worked well. Lamina and, and Zambo is the pairing in midfield for them. Harrison Reed's a good player and can come in and play with either of them, and that's a really nice three-man rotation. But Lemina was brilliant next to Zambo, just snapped up everything, won every loose ball, every second ball, into tackles non-stop, just ran himself into the ground. And this is the player Southampton thought they were buying. I don't know what happened at Southampton, but it never worked from there. It's working really well at Fulham. And if they can keep those two fit and healthy and happy in midfield, that's a really strong pairing. Um Like I've said before, I I think their issue is the manager. I I just don't think Scott Parker's up to the task. Again, I got a little bit of pushback on this. People said, oh, you have to give him credit for the turnaround. They've won one of five. What turnaround is there? They've won one of their last five and taken one point and taken four points in five games. They took four from the previous seven. I mean, I don't know what turnaround there's been. Yes, they've gotten better, but they haven't turned things around. And they've gotten better by throwing out everything that he thought was his plan, pretty much abandoning his entire starting eleven from the start of the season. I don't know what turnaround there's been. This just looks like someone throwing the proverbial against the wall and hoping something sticks. Now, some of it is sticking and it is working for them. But I think he's the. I think he's the issue. I think if you put Rafa Benitez in that job, I think he'd have them mid table. With all that talent there, Loftus Cheek and Luckman playing really well last night, getting in behind Liverpool's midfield, picking up the pockets of space, feeding Caviero. If Caviero was a better finisher, that game they're out of sight before Liverpool even start playing. Um, a little bit of controversy over the Liverpool penalty. It is a penalty under under the rules. It's a penalty. I I, I think it's soft, but it is a penalty. Um, I'd be fuming if it was given against Liverpool. That's what I'll say. I'd be fuming if it was given against Liverpool. But Fulham can take a a lot of promise from that performance. If they play like that in the coming weeks, they have a real chance. They have Brighton next. If they win, they will go above Brighton. If they can win that game, which is Wednesday night, they will go above Brighton. And then they can start to claw into the likes of Leeds and Newcastle. After that, they've got Newcastle. After that, they've got Southampton at home. Now that'll be tough, but it's at home. I I think with a better manager there they're probably already in mid-table. But Right now, I think Parker is what's holding them back. Um, their bad luck, bad day was compounded by Burnley going to Arsenal and, and winning 1-0, which meant that despite their really good performance, Fulham actually dropped from 17th to 18th in the league. They've just had no luck at all this season. Penalty shenanigans against Sheffield United. Penalty shenanigans against um West Ham penalty shenanigans against Everton and, and now this dropping a place in the league despite one of your best performances of the season. Um, Burnley put in a very solid shift against Arsenal. But in truth Arsenal beat themselves here. I mean there's just no way around it. Arsenal they're in they're in bother I don't understand how Granit Xhaka is still an Arsenal player. After what he did last October 2019. Mocking the fans. Swearing at the fans. As club captain. Swearing at the fans. He was one of the big reasons I you know, Emery got the got the sack. I don't know how he's still an Arsenal player. Let alone a starting member of the team. Uh, but this was just more stupidity. It's not like he's a really good player who plays well every week. He has been a massive disappointment since they paid $40 or whatever it was to Gladbach to bring him in. He's been poor-slash-bang average for the majority of his time there. The odd decent performance, but I mean, red cards galore over his time at the club, uh, yellow cards by the bucket load. Again, just such stupid behaviour. Such stupid behaviour. You can't put your hand on someone else's throat in the middle of a game. And expect to get away with it. Arsenal looking not to have a second player sent off. Mohamed Elneny should have been sent off later on in the game for uh, slapping out or pushing out and and catching James Tarkovsky in the face. And then falling on the ground as if he'd been struck himself. Shameful behaviour. I don't know why he got away with a yellow card. That should have been a red. Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang finally finds the back of the net. Unfortunately for him he finds the wrong net and he puts it into his own goal and gives Burnley a 1-0 win. It's an enormous win for Burnley. It is a massive, massive win for Burnley. It jumps them out of the bottom three. They're now only a point behind Brighton. And Burnley will be really confident that they're going to stay up. They've got Sean Dyche, who's the best manager in that bottom five. In fact, other than Bielsa, I would say he's the best manager in the bottom half. You, you can argue Nuno if you want. I'll, I'll accept that. That's no problem. But he, Sean Dyche, is one of the best managers in the league, whether people like it or not. Um, Burnley, like I said, huge, huge win, and it's it's what they needed. It's what they've badly needed. We know they're going to struggle to score goals because they're Burnley and they've been struggling to stop goals this season as well but they managed to keep a clean sheet here and get away with the win so they'll be thrilled. For Arsenal though, I mean you really have to question what's going on top to bottom at the club. I mean they've got a bad ownership situation where the Cronkies just don't care. Uh, do, Do the people in charge of running The day-to-day football operations have the experience and the know-how to run the day-to-day football operations of one of the biggest clubs in in Europe. I'm not sure. We haven't seen any suggestion that they have. Edu, certainly out of his depth as a director of football, uh, solely reliant on contacts with agents, which just isn't a good way to operate. Um, Arteta, I mean... I really do think he has a good idea, a good plan, a clear vision for Arsenal. But there's a couple of issues. Number one, he's completely unproven. He'd never managed a game in his life before he took over at Arsenal. And he was immediately hyped up as he was going to be this, you know, this next pep. And there were all these stories about, you know, post-it notes and his obsession with football and all this garbage that just really, really was fluff and bluff fluff and bluster. He obviously former Arsenal player, so he had that. The fans were on board with it. He'd sold them a vision. They chased him a couple of times. And they get him in. And then there's all this pressure and all this hype. There's always going to be pressure. It's Arsenal Football Club. It's the Arsenal. Again, one of the biggest clubs in Europe. One of the three biggest jobs in England, along with United and Liverpool. And it's just, it's all going to hell. It really is. Now, like I say, we don't know that he's got the proper support from above. He certainly doesn't have it from the ownership. But, you know, the director of football is just out of his depth. Is the the chairman the right guy? Is the head of football operations the right guy? None of it looks pretty. On the field, it's a mess. Defensively, they look ropey at at best. Um, Midfield is a mess. Even with Thomas Partey when he plays, the rest of it just isn't functioning. There's no progression of the ball. There's no aggression in the team, Barrel Nenny, whose aggression tends to come in the wrong way, as with Xhaka. They look aimless in attack. They're passive. They don't create ending. There's no patterns of play. They don't really have a way to get Aubameyang into the game. And they're still playing Willian, who's been dreadful since they signed him. Like I said, he would be in the summer. Arteta came in with a clear vision of rebuilding, breaking everything down, tearing it down, breaking everything up. And let's go from the bottom up. Let's rebuild this entire team. And somehow he got caught halfway between doing that and pandering to older players. Like Willian, who they signed on a three-year deal for about 200 grand a week. He's 32 years of age. Do you think the last two years of that contract aren't going to be really, really ugly? The first year has been ugly. The next two are going to be worse. They gave Aubameyang at 31, a big four-year contract. Was that a smart decision? Probably not. It's understandable, but probably wasn't a smart decision. You're still playing David Luiz, still playing Xhaka, these guys that have been dreadful. You know, Mustafi's still in the mix. Uh, It just, all in all, it is a disaster. And there's an article in Football.London by Chris Wheatley, who's very, very good, very, very clued in at Arsenal. That does not make good reading. It really does not make good reading. If you don't mind, I'm going to read you a couple of bits of this. Granite Jack's Granite moment of madness against Burnley was still mad with the regime Mikel Arteta has presided over since starting his first full season at the club. Only a fortnight beforehand, Nicolas Pepe had received his marching orders after launching his head at Alioski during the stalemate against Leeds at Ellen Road. Arteta's post-match reaction after the game, saw him lambaste Pepe for his unacceptable actions and criticising the Ivorian for letting the team down. It's a rarity that you'll see a manager criticise a senior player in such blunt fashion, but Artet had no issue doing so, and Football.London understands that some members of the first-team squad were unhappy about the way he called them out on TV. So you've got that. Then you've got, there is talk that many of the players have mentally clocked out including Xhaka, who was already not happy at the club after being used in a variety of different roles since Arteta took over. Well, first of all, you're granted Xhaka, you should be happy to be used in any role that that Arteta decides. You you should have no claim to any position in that team. Football.London also understands that Arteta's relationship with David Luiz has soured over the past few months, with neither the manager nor player speaking to each other. And yet, that guy is a regular on the team. Now, he's out at the moment with the head injury from the Wolves game, but how's he been playing if he's not? If he's not manager and player aren't speaking to each other. Why is the player playing when the player is not very good? It, It's incredible. Here's another bit. Added to the omission of Mesut and Socrates from the Premier League and Europa League squads, The fallout effect of leaving two influential figures in the dressing room has been felt. Mesut also went on Twitter last night and mocked Arsenal. Do you need help? (sighs) Then you've got the William Saliba issue. On Instagram recently, Saliba responded to a comment or a a picture by uh, Matthew Gundusi, who's out on loan at Hertha Berlin. And... Nicolas Pepe responded, and then he turned around and said, uh, Saliba said, "Uh, I'm supporting the brother who is in jail just like Iowa, uh, just like I am. Basically, you know, Guendouzi had that big falling out with Arteta, and Saliba is clearly taking that side. Saliba we haven't seen yet for Arsenal. Uh, Here's another bit. Many have questioned why 28 million man William Saliba hasn't been used in the first team this season and when speaking to a source inside the club football.london was told the Frenchman was an emery signing in reference to Arteta's predecessor what difference does that make i really don't understand what difference that makes you're playing david louise we know he's not good enough you're playing rob holding we know he's not good enough you're playing mustafi we know He's not good enough. William Saliba is hugely talented. Arsenal beat out a bunch of clubs to get him. But Arteta's not gonna play him because he was an Emery signing. I mean this is nonsense of the highest uh, the highest order. It's bad enough he sent Lucas Torreira on loan while keeping a bunch of garbage midfielders who aren't fit to waste Torreira's boots. But now he won't play Saliba because he's an Emery signing. As I said, I-, I had high hopes for Arteta. This article I read last night really, really has given me pause for thought. It's no surprise either to see leaks emanating from the club. Football. London was told that several agents of first team players briefed the media of the fight between Danny Ceballos and David Luiz. It is understood. That Arteta told his squad in an internal meeting, he will destroy whoever is behind the leaks. And of course, that information leaked out. Yeah, I mean, you couldn't make it up. You really couldn't make it up. Arsenal have now lost four league games at home in a row for the first time since 1959. They sit 15th in the league. It is. It is. Oh, it's unacceptable. For for a club like Arsenal, it's unacceptable. And look, if they made a decision tomorrow to fire him, you could have no gripe with it. You could have absolutely no gripe if they made a decision to fire him. Seven defeats already this season. The only teams they have lost more games this season are the bottom three. Fulham, West Brom and Sheffield United have lost everybody. So they don't count. So Fulham and West Brom. They've lost more than Burnley. They've lost more than Brighton. They've lost more than Leeds. Seven defeats. Ten goals scored. Only Burnley, West Brom and uh, Sheffield United have scored less. And, Sheffield, and, and West Brom only scored one less. Unfortunately for Arteta, he was... I think he was too early going into this job. He needed a... Like, Ars, it's Arsenal. You, you can't just walk into a club like Arsenal with no experience. I'm sorry. It's unfortunate, but... You've got to now make him the favorite for the sack, slightly ahead of of Corporal Parker. I think, I think it's got to be Emory. as um, alright, uh, Emery. It's got to be Arteta as favorite for the boot. They've got Southampton next, then Everton, then Chelsea. Uh, where's the win? Where's the win coming from? City in the in the cup quarterfinals. You know, I I don't think he sees that at the end of the year. I really don't. It's hard to find the win. It's hard to find two wins. Very hard to find three wins. You know, you look through fixtures. It's hard to see them finding a way out of the bottom half this season. Maybe it's a little bit knee-jerk after, after last night, but, I mean, it is what it is. The other game then last night was um, Leicester against Brighton. And Leicester put Brighton to the sword. Uh, absolutely demolished them in the first half. James Justin running amok. Down the right wing, any club in need of a really good right back, throw your money at them. At At Leicester for him, he's going to be the 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 backup when Pereira comes back, and he's too good to be a backup. He's really really good. Liverpool should have signed him. When I told them to sign him a couple of years ago for seven million, uh, instead he'll probably cost close to twenty five. But he is very very good. James Madison back in form, couple of good goals. That second goal he scored absolute worldly left footed curler from the edge of the box. He's obviously heard that the rumblings that people are saying Jack Grealish is a better player than him, and decided to put those right. Another goal for Jamie Vardy, who just continues to score. I think I read Jamie Vardy scored hundred and is it a hundred and seventy goals or something since he turned twenty-seven years of age. And uh, let me just check this now real quick. Jamie Vardy. This is good radio. Uh, Jamie Vardy in the Premier League. No, sorry, it's 113 One hundred and thirteen goals in the Premier League. What a career. What a mad career. And he keeps getting better as well. I mean, he's going to turn 34 in January, and the man keeps getting better. But Leicester are hugely reliant on him. Hugely, hugely reliant. If anything goes wrong there, they are going to be in bother. Um, 113 Premier League goals all after the age of 27 right that is it that is the show uh, tomorrow we will preview the midweek games with Guy then Wednesday and Thursday we'll review the games Friday as well review the games preview the weekend's games try and get in some Twitter questions try and get in a best or worst list someone had a best or a best or worst sale by each Premier League club one that I do want to do so I'll try and get that one this week Uh, aside from that I hope you all had a great weekend Um, the football was not great I would say not great one of the one of the one of the lesser weekends that we've had so far a lot of bad football and unfortunately we're probably gonna get, get a bit more of that coming up as the games get tighter and tighter and closer together and there's less recovery time and Players are starting to get tired this season as well. So, uh, But we'll have to work our way through it. Um, thank you, as always, to Guy Drinkle. Thank you to Foxhorn for the music. And thank you to you for listening. I'll see you tomorrow. Bye-bye. Podcast Network.